Willkommen, bienvenue, and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we'll be discussing Ragtime. How are we doing? As always, I hope this episode finds you well. The weather is changing here in Chicago for the worse. So I hope that wherever you are, you are warm and comfy and cozy and safe. I hope that we are all doing well. Benny, are you doing well? Benny is nodding. Fantastic. What am I talking about? Benny... Not just Benny. I'm so used to just looking at Benny in that one chair, but we have two people in the booth this week. Of course, Patty is back. Yes, yes, Patty is back. We are so excited. And I, I, I guess I'm still in shock because... I was I had a bomb dropped on me right before we started recording an amazing bit of news and I guess I'm just so shell-shocked blindsided by this news that it, I I completely went to, in, into a hazy state a hazy state but we have a huge announcement everybody musical minions of all creeds and credos <laughs> just want to it's so exciting we, we're not losing Benny. No, we're not losing Benny. I know that we've... I, I, I had this spoiled for me right before we started recording, as I said. I, I'm, I'm a babbling brook right now. I'm, I'm so happy. Uh, Benny is not leaving us. Patty is certainly not leaving us. And that's because Benny and Patty are going to be working on this very podcast together week in and week out. I'm going to be able to see their bright, shining faces all the time. I'm so excited, and I cannot believe they kept this secret from me. These wicked little witches, these these evil little wood nymphs. Ooh, they're so sneaky with their secrets. But I cannot I cannot hide behind this smile. The smile betrays me. I cannot... What, what I should say is I cannot pretend to be upset or angry with these two. I love these two. I got a big Cheshire cat smile on my face. And as we all know, we're all mad here at the Musical Man Recording Birth Station Studio. <laughs> so yeah, I'm so excited. Patty is not going anywhere. Benny is not going anywhere. I also got to see a fresh batch of baby photos from Patty. Patty, Benny. Oh, it's we're a one big podcasting family. I love you both. Thank you so much for being here. So excited. I do want to slide, if you will, into this opening segment here because I just want to I want to talk about an announcement that was made this week. Another announcement. Not as big 
as the one that was just dropped on me like a bomb right before we started recording. No, 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 no. This is a slightly less impactful announcement. Disney is currently developing a project known as Marley. It is a musical adaptation of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol that will be directed by Bill Condon, who many of you may know as the director of the live-action remake of Beauty and the Beast. And the, the movie Marley, the musical movie Marley, will feature music and lyrics by Stephen Schwartz. For the record, we should not be developing any new adaptations of A Christmas Carol, and we should also... We should also not be adapting the following properties ever again. Uh, ever again? Maybe for the next 50 years. Let's give ourselves a big 50-year gap. I don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast. I feel like I've... I, I, I know I've ranted about it on Twitter. But here are the properties we should not be adapting for the next 50 years. We just need to let these go. A Christmas Carol, of course, I already said that. But, but also, Alice in Wonderland, Tarzan, Peter Pan, The Jungle Book, The Wizard of Oz... End of, end of list. Uh, we have tackled these sources from every possible angle and filtered them through every conceivable lens. It is time to move on. Twitter user Allison Wonderland. Wait a minute. <laughs> I know I just said we should never adapt Alice in Wonderland ever again, but maybe Alice, Alice Sun Wonderland disagrees with me. Twitter user Alice in Wonderland has given me the, the lovely gift she has bestowed upon me a jellical name, and that jellical name is Melpomene, after the Greek muse of tragedy, Melpomene. Thank you very much, listener Allison Wonderland. I was quite quite frustrated this past week because the Twitter profile for Cats the Movie, if anyone's not aware of this, they started this whole thing where, you know, if you if you gave them, if you gave them, it's classic like social media. Give us your information and we'll give you something that's vaguely ephemeral in its value. So they said, give us your first name. Give us your first name and your favorite emoji, and we will give you your angelical name. And I was frustrated because I gave mine, and I, you know, if you're going to throw that out there, I feel like if you're going to throw that out there, you have to follow through on every single person. Okay, this Twitter profile has like 24,000 followers. You'd think it would be more, but I'm a little worried about those box office returns, Cats the Movie. You got to get that engagement up. And I guess this was an attempt on their part to do that. But if, if you're gonna put that out there, you have to respond to everybody. Don't leave anyone in the dust wanting for their jellical name. And so I, I poked and I prodded them. I was very funny. I was very charming. I was not mean or aggressive. That's not how you get what you want on social media. You have to be charming. You have to sort of fluff them up. Fluff them up. And eventually I did get my jellical name from the cat's Twitter profile. And that name is Persnickety, which is hilarious. And I'm not kidding. A lot of people call me Persnickety in college, out of college. Nobody does to this day. And I, I won't answer to it. If, you, if a human refers to me as Persnickety, I will not respond to it. But if a jellical cat refers to me as Persnickety, I must, I must adhere to the commands of my terrible feline masters. And so my terrible feline masters, I say to you, I, I worship you, thank you very much, my feline masters. But at the end of the day, my full jellical name, if you please, my terrible feline masters, must be Malpomene Persnickety. Malpomene has to go first. That's the name I got first, okay? You took too long, Cats the movie, and I say that with respect. Please do not dig your claws into the back of my neck as you suck the silvery light out of my skull. The silvery light represents my soul. Let 
let's get out of this opening segment. I've ranted long enough. Let's get those juicy beef chunk show facts. Show me the beef chunks. And by that, uh, by that I mean, show me the show facts. Ragtime is this week's subject. Ragtime was the 1998, a 1998 nominee, I should say, for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It opened on Broadway on January 18th, 1998 at the Ford Center for the Performing Arts and ran for 834 performances. The book, which was written by Terrence McNally, is based on the 1975 novel by E.L. Doctorow, which was adapted into a film in 1981. The music was by Stephen Flaherty. The lyrics were by Lynn Ahrens. Uh, you might know Flaherty and Ahrens from their collaborations. Their other collaborations include Lucky Stiff, Once on This Island, My Favorite Year, Susical, A Man of No Importance, Dessa Rose, The Glorious Ones, Rocky, and Anastasia. The director of the original Broadway production of Ragtime was Frank Galati, putting it out there now, so we're not surprised when it comes up later. This is an all-white writing team led by a white director. I would be more kind in general to Ragtime if even a single writer of color had been brought on board or the director had been a person of color. There's a noticeable lack of care on display here, and I chalk that up to an absence of experience, authentic experience, and perspective. Back to the show facts. The musical director was David Loud. The choreographer, well, that's N.A. We, we don't have, again, we don't have an official choreographer, but we do have a musical staging by credit, and that is attributed to Graciela Danielle. Scenic design, again, N.A. We have production design, according to IBDB. That was by Eugene Lee, and we have projection design by Wendell K. Harrington. The lighting design was by Jules Fisher and Peggy Eisenhower. The sound design was by Jonathan Deans. The costume design was by Santo Laquasto. And the original Broadway cast included Peter Friedman, Mark Jacoby, Marin Maisie, Audra McDonald, Brian Stokes Mitchell, Jim Cordy, Tommy Hollis, Judy K. Lynette, Perry Stevens, Sutcliffe, Kevin Bach, Rod Campbell, Bogue. It might be Bogue. Going back to Kevin, it might be Kevin Bogue. I got wicked on the brain. What can I tell you. Oh, it recently became, what, the number five longest-running Broadway show? Wicked! You're gonna be so popular! But getting back to Kevin, it could be Kevin Bogue, but I'm gonna have some fun and say it's Kevin Bach. Anyway, Kevin Bach, Rod Campbell, I believe we already said your name, Rod. Ugh. Larry Daggett, Dwayne Martin Foster, Colton Green, and Ken Zeiser, Jeffrey Kuhn, Keith Lamel Thomas, Joe Lacaro, Conrad McLaren, Leah Michelle, yeah, that Leah Michelle, baby, David Mucci, and L. Nathan, Michael Carroll, Michael Red, Monica L. Richards, Shane Rogers, Gordon Stanley, Alex Strange, Vanessa Townsville. Crisp and Bruce Wanant. Let's talk about Tony's, baby. Tony's. Ragtime One, Best Book of a Musical, Terrence McNally. Best Original Musical Score, Stephen Flaherty and Lynn Ahrens. Best Featured Actress in a Musical, Audra McDonald. And Best Orchestrations, William David Braun. And the additional nominations for this production Best Musical, of course. Best Actor in a Musical, Peter Friedman. Best Actor in a Musical, Brian Stokes Mitchell. Best Actress in a Musical, Marin Maisie. Best Scenic Design, Eugene Lee. Best Costume Design, Asento. Laquasto, Best Lighting Design, Jules Fisher and Peggy Eisenhower, Best Choreography, Graciela Danielle, and Best Direction of a Musical, Frank Galati. Thirteen nominations in total, four awards taken home at the end of the day. Let's talk about that plot. It would be an understatement to say there are a lot of moving pieces within Ragtime, so for the sake of time, I'm going to try... <laughs> 
and pare everything down to the bare essentials. Will this attempt at economy prove successful? Only time will tell. Writers McNally, Aarons, and Flaherty go out of their way to underline how theirs is a story of three communities blending together at the beginning of the 20th century. During the show's opening number, we are introduced to these communities one by one. The first is the upper crust of white society as represented by a family from New Rochelle, New York. The members of the family are referred to as mother, father, grandfather, mother's younger brother, and the little boy. The little boy is also routinely referred to as Edgar, and for a hot minute I had no idea why this distinction was being made. Why is everyone relegated to a label except for Edgar, I asked myself. Then it hit me. The author of the original novel is E.L. Doctorow, and his initials stand for Edgar Lawrence. Edgar is the first character to speak on stage and is made out to be a conduit for historical premonitions, so I suppose we're meant to view him as important. If he's meant to be a surrogate for E.L. Doctorow, that's too much for me to handle. Ragtime is already playing fast and loose with history by having historical figures bump up against and directly affect fictional characters. The last thing the show needs is a metatextual layer. Edgar is a crazy character, but I'm getting off track. So we've established that the first community is the upper crust of white society, blah blah blah, as represented by the blah 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 totemic family of New Rochelle, blah blah blah. The second community is populated by the black residents of Harlem, who are chiefly represented by Sarah and Cole House Walker Jr. And the third and final community is America's immigrant population as represented by a Jewish Latvian silhouette artist named Tata and his young daughter. I'm fairly certain Tata refers to his daughter by name, but the character the character is officially known as The Little Girl on the Internet Broadway Database. I realize these monikers are being pulled from the source novel, but the decision to label some characters and name others is weird. I keep thinking it's an artistic choice, that it has to mean something, and I'm starting to think it doesn't. Alright, now that we've identified Ragtime's characters, who as a reminder are meant to represent entire swaths of humanity, a choice that an all-white writing team might be expected to make. Let's discuss how they come together. Father, who owns a fireworks factory, <laughs> like you do, and is an amateur explorer, like you do, leaves mother in charge of the business and household before embarking on an expedition to the North Pole, one led by real-life adventurer Robert Peary and his first officer, Matthew Henson. Matthew Henson is black, and father is like, a black first officer? We never hear from Matthew Henson or Robert Peary again, Peary Perry, so it doesn't matter. Mother soon discovers a black newborn baby has been buried alive in her garden. You know, like you do. And when the child's unwell parent, Sarah, is apprehended, Mother announces that she will be taking responsibility for both parties. The baby's father is Cole House Walker Jr., a popular ragtime composer who treated Sarah poorly. I think he may have cheated on her. He didn't, like, abuse her. We, we're supposed to like... Cole House, I guess. I think we'll we'll process some information later. I'm not quite sure how we're supposed to really think of Cole House. It's quite muddled and not in a fun, let's think about this way. Ooh, it's fun to turn over. It's more not, this is messy and stupid and vague and muddy and bad. <laughs> Just bad. <laughs> but I'm revealing too much of myself. Oh, so Cole House, who treated Sarah poorly, is now determined to win her back. 
He buys a Model T after introducing himself to Henry Ford, like you do, and drives the vehicle to New Rochelle, but upon his arrival, Sarah refuses to see him. Cole House discovers he's a father and vows to return to Mother's home every Sunday, and over the course of several weeks, he becomes a friend to the family. Sarah eventually comes to accept Cole House back into her life, and they dream of what their glorious future might hold. For future reference, Cole House's idol is Booker T. Washington, who we often see on stage preaching the virtues of patience and respectability to black Americans. During this period of time, Mother and Edgar meet Tata and the little girl while waiting for a trolley. Tata brought his daughter to America, thinking it would be a land of endless opportunity, but their troubled life in New York City has left him ready for a change. How troubling was their life in New York City, you might be asking? How troubling was it? Well, they were living in squalid conditions. One, the little girl was often ill. Two, and three, some rich asshole, <laughs> some rich asshole offered to buy the little girl from Tata. So yeah, New York City didn't work out for them. They are on their way to Boston when they encounter Mother and Edgar, and despite a rocky introduction, the adults set an example for their cautious children by engaging in polite conversation. Meanwhile, Mother's younger brother is, uh, you know, um, another character we're supposed to care about. Mother's younger brother is, as we are told right up top, a genius when it comes to fireworks and explosives in general. If you think that won't come back around to bite everyone in the ass, the plump, ripe ass. You've got another thing coming. This guy, mother's younger brother, this guy, well, he is a, whoo, he's a disaster. His entire arc can be boiled down to, ooh, I'm horny and I want to be a part of something so bad. We watch him strike out with real-life vaudeville performer Evelyn Nesbitt before happening upon his true calling, which is the fine art of political protest. Real-life agitator Emma Goldman inspires him while delivering an impassioned speech, one dedicated to the mill workers who are on strike in Lawrence, Massachusetts. Tata is one such worker, and as the strike comes to a violent end, he and the little girl barely manage to escape with their lives by hopping a train. Tata calms his daughter by showing her his latest invention, a flipbook of moving silhouettes. The train conductor offers to buy the flipbook, and Tata realizes it could serve as a new source of income. He dubs his creation the movie book and sets to making more. Father returns from his North Pole expedition to find that everything at home is topsy-turvy. He is not happy about it, these changes, ugh. But Sarah, Cole House, and their son have become a vital part of Mother's life, and she is not interested in her husband's concerns. Fuck off, Father. Speaking of Sarah and Cole House, how's it going for them? Well, not good. While out on a drive, they are confronted by Willie Conklin and his goons, a nasty crew of volunteer firefighters who have encountered Cole House in the past. They destroy the Model T while hurling racial epithets at the couple, and as this occurs, we hear Booker T. Washington speak of, you guessed it, patience and respectability, and how it is important for the black community to uphold these virtues if they are ever able, if they are ever willing, wanting to earn respect from the white community. They're going to have to be patient and respectable. 
It's ironic, see, because Kohlhaus thought he could raise himself up by, you know, being an asset to society. But the funny thing about racists like Willie Conklin is that they don't really care if a black person is an asset to society. Racism isn't conditional. It does not willingly fold in on itself in the face of good deeds. So uh, take that, Booker T. Washington, I guess. Yeah, Booker T. Washington. What a dum-dum, or something. Kohlhaus postpones his marriage to Sarah. I should say he has, you know, proposed marriage to Sarah at this point. But he proposes, he proposes and then he postpones, is what I'm trying to say, so he can pursue justice within New York's Byzantine legal system. Unfortunately, no one is interested in bringing Conklin up on charges or helping Kohlhaus win a settlement for his Model T. Sarah, having stood by as her fiancé grows increasingly despondent, vows to take action herself. She attends a rally for a vice presidential candidate and is beaten to death when real-life financier J.P. Morgan mistakes her for an assassin. We will explore this further. Trust. Trust me. In the wake of Sarah's death, Kohlhaus becomes the sort of Vengeful, violent black man conservatives love to invoke when confronted with their own sins. I would laugh at the characterization, but the details are so specific, it's borderline fetishistic. Not only does Kohlhaus bomb a firehouse, murder several firemen, and demand that Willie Conklin be personally delivered to him, he assembles a gang of acolytes who are forbidden from singing or playing music. Is Cole House a comic book supervillain? Uh, and in case you were wondering, Mother's younger brother aligns himself with Cole House, offering up his expertise and explosives in order to help the cause. So yeah, none of this is helping Mother and Father's reputation in New Rochelle, to say the least. Mother still has custody of Sarah's child, and their neighbors are not pleased by this fact. Father eventually moves the family to Atlantic City, where Mother and Edgar run into Tata and the little girl a second time. Tata has rebranded himself as the Baron Ashkenaz, having become a film director and the owner of a small studio known as Buffalo Nickel Photoplay Inc. In other words, Tata invented movies. He invented the movie book, and then he invented movies, and now he's a film director. Yep. Sure. Mother and Tata flirt with each other on the boardwalk. Edgar and the little girl are becoming friends. We all know where this is going, but we'll come back around to it in a second. I will say that while exploring Atlantic City, Edgar runs afoul of Harry Houdini and begs the artist, the escape artist, I should say, he begs Harry Houdini to warn the Duke, warn the Duke, Harry Houdini. That, that, that happens. I don't, I don't, uh, uh. I don't know what to tell you. Father is summoned back to New York when Kohlhouse and his followers take possession of the J.P. Morgan Library and threaten to blow it sky high. The police believe Father will be able to talk some sense into Kohlhouse, but Father insists there is only one man who can resolve the situation peacefully. Booker T. Washington. Enter Booker T. Washington, who convinces Kohlhouse that violence is not the route to justice. Uh, so, um... I guess we take back what we implied about Booker T. Washington. His words are uh, not empty, and black people should turn the other cheek in the face of white hatred or something. It's complicated. All right, okay. That Cole House is willing to surrender enrages his followers, including 
of course, mother's younger brother. Because who would know better about what a black man should or should not do or should or should not say than mother's younger brother? Shut the fuck up, mother's younger brother. Go back to the fireworks factory and make cherry spinners and whiz bangers or whatever the fuck you do. Anyway, Kohlhaus implores his followers to use their words and the power of the pen, not the sword, etc., etc., and this seems to calm everyone down. As they exit the library, Kohlhaus is immediately shot to death while his hands are in the air. Thanks a lot, Booker T. Washington. Christ, this show... This show really does not know how it feels about Booker T. Washington, does it? Really puts him through the ringer, doesn't it? No, we're not doing that at all. No, no, why don't you say that? We're only saying that this shit is, you know, it's hard to figure out. Racism is wild, man. <laughs> it's at this point in the Wikipedia summary that Edgar, this is a quote, quote, Edgar takes on the task of fulfilling Kohlhaus's wishes that their story be told. So like, Edgar actually is the gatekeeper. He is the Horatio of our narrative. Oh, thank God. I can't imagine, I can't imagine. I can imagine E.O. Doctorow sitting snugly at his writing desk wondering which of his characters should be responsible for housing and preserving all of this knowledge, these historical life lessons. Who should act as the tender, doe-eyed vessel for human history. Ah, yes, the little white boy who is named after me, Edgar. Perfect. For all I know, McNally had the idea of referring to the boy as Edgar, but until someone can confirm it either way, I'm going to stick with my writing desk portrait of E.L. Doctorow. Thank you very much. In other news, Mother's younger brother joins the Mexican Revolution alongside real-life activist Emiliano Zapata, which, okay, how exactly did he avoid jail time for the J.P. Morgan incident? Whatever, this has gone on long enough. Houdini is shocked when Archduke Franz Ferdinand is assassinated and society barrels toward World War One. World War One. If only he had followed Edgar's really vague directive. I, I can't, I can't even begin to express how wearisome I am in the face of Edgar's predictions. It is so dumb. I completely forgot to mention this. Edgar also predicts the bombing of the firehouse. He wakes up after having a dream about Harry Houdini, and he tells his mother, oh, all, of the, all, the, all of the people, all of the people are going to die, mother. Oh, terrible death all around us, mother. It is very heavily implied that he predicts the bombing of the firehouse and the murders and the yada-da-da and the yada-da-da. Father is killed, speaking of death, when the RMS Lusitania is torpedoed by a German U-boat. Anyone exhausted yet? And yeah, after a year of grieving, Mother marries Tata and they adopt Sarah's son, giving him the name Kohlhaus Walker III. Did the kid not have a name before this point? Why would the kid not have a name? No, no, I can't dwell on that. Here's what I would like to dwell on, though. Tata invents the little rascals! Mm-hmm, <laughs> And I swear to God, I'm not making that up. It's like the, the final thing we learned during the show's epilogue, and if I'm not supposed to think Tata invents the little rascals, then I'm either quite stupid, or this show is going out of its way to mess with me. For the record, our gang, otherwise known as the Little Rascals, was conceived by Hal Roach, who in no way seems to have served as an inspiration for Tata, and movies were invented in the late 1800s, not the early 1900s. Historical fiction is one thing, but this is like an alternate reality. This 
is some Earth B shit. You might as well throw some steampunk hovercrafts into the mix. For the purposes of this week's episode, I listened to the 1998 original Broadway cast album of Ragtime, and of course I watched the 1998 Tony Awards performance of Ragtime's opening number, which is known as Prologue, Ragtime. And the audience, you know, at first, while watching this performance, this Tony's performance, I I was sort of confused and uh, flummoxed by the audience giving an ovation at one point. There's a point in the performance, I'm going off the hip, I'm shooting off the hip, you can tell I'm off script, right? There is a point in the performance where white society, immigrant society, and black society are literally divided into three giant pods of people, these big masses of people, and they revolve around each other, these big blobs of people revolve around each other on stage as if they're going clockwise or counterclockwise, and they're all very suspicious of each other. It's very on the nose, but I do like that image. And I was sort of confused, I guess, why the audience was applauding during this big moment, this staging. And then I realized, oh, right, that's not easy to do. (laughs) Why did I think it was easy to do? I feel like most of the time I watch musical theater, professional Broadway musical theater, and think, wow, that looks fucking crazy, and I would never be able to, you know, perform that dance routine or sing those notes. But for some reason, I looked at this bit of staging and thought, why is everybody applauding? That's not that impressive, is it? Oh, wait, yes it is. It would take so long to learn that. Let's talk about the score of Ragtime. Let's begin with that number that I just mentioned, which was featured on the Tony Awards in 1998, Prologue, Ragtime. In 1902, Father built a house at the crest of the Broadview Avenue Hill in New Rochelle, New York. And it seemed for some years thereafter that all the family's days would be warm and fair. source of our show-related ephemera, but it does involve director Frank Galati and his love for Ragtime's opening line of dialogue, which you just heard. In 1902, Father built a house at the crest of the Broadview Avenue Hill in New Rochelle, New York, and it seemed for some years thereafter that all the family's days would be warm and fair. Galati swoons over this line, which is pulled directly from the novel and delivered by Edgar, but I find it to be equally stiff and lofty, especially as delivered by Alex Strange. Does Edgar have to be this crisp and precocious Alex Strange? Edgar creeps me out. He's got Coke bottle glasses and a banana pudding bowl cut. Nothing about his aesthetic is endearing to me. And what is it about the line that makes it so profound, Galati? Can someone else fill this Philistine in? I'm the Philistine is what I'm trying to say. Here's another nugget I picked up from our show-related ephemera. What is it? What is the show-related ephemera? Tell us now! No, wait. Patience, my musical minions. This opening number, which is officially known, again, as Prologue Ragtime, was written by Aarons and Flaherty before they were officially hired to create the score. More on that later. I merely wanted to plant the seed, as the teens say. But enough stalling with the trivia and savage critiques of Alex Strange. How do I feel about this opening? I like it! 
back against the wall, finger in my face. I'm here to say that I like it well enough. We all basically enjoy and appreciate Aaron's and Flaherty, right? They have a naturally sprightly style, and when it's applied to subjects like Susical or Anastasia, the film, I really mean the film, <laughs> don't have much of a reference for the stage adaptation, which I know is more Dr. Zhivago than it is animated Bartok the Bat. Rasputin! Ay, ay, ay! The product is, you know, when, when we apply their style as, oh God, if I could just start over from the beginning, hey, when it's, when that style, that sprightly style is applied to soft subjects like Seussical or Anastasia, the product is reliably hummable and broad and appeal. It works. It works is what I'm saying. This sentiment of mine can be applied to the prologue, which, despite being long in the tooth, confidently introduces the huge cast of characters and the world in which they operate. So yes, I do think that their style does pair well with this opening. The problem with Andaf's polished style is that they can't escape from it even when they want and need to explore trickier, more troubling themes. Act 2 is substantially darker than Act 1, but you never hear that seismic shift in the score. It remains stubbornly safe, as if every track could double for a Disney film. Like Anastasia? Yes, like Anastasia. Technically, though I'm sure we all know that Anastasia is a 20th century Fox film and not part of the Disney canon. Right, kids? Right. I'm all over the place. The prologue is good. All right, it's good. I prefer the Tony's cut that version, the shortened version, because it gets the same points across in less than half the time. So if you're in a rush, I would opt for the Tony's performance myself. And now, testifying for the defense, Miss Evelyn Nesbitt! of Stanford White. He's the famous architect! Yes, that's right. He put me on a velvet swing and made me wear, well, hardly anything. Ruined at the age of 15, your honor. Then I went and married Mr. Harry Thaw. Eccentric millionaire. Oh, oh! Harry's a jealous man. the crime of the century as it's catchy and a nice showcase for Lynette Perry. She portrays Evelyn Nesbitt as this cheeky nymph, a proto-Marilyn Monroe who coos and squeals to the delight of thousands. It's, it's a delight. It's a delight. The number and character prove to be totally frivolous. Nesbitt, as we are glibly told in the show's epilogue, the finale, faded into obscurity after losing her looks. But Aaron's and Flaherty seem much more at home here than when shit gets heavy. Are they basically riffing on Chicago's Roxy Hart for the purposes of the crime of the century? Yes, but I'll take it. The 
my people, well here's my theory of what this country is moving toward. Every worker a cog in motion, well that's the notion of Henry Ford. Titans and one man ratchets and one man reaches to pull one cord. Car keeps moving in one direction. Speed up the belt, speed up the belt, Sam. Speed up the belt, speed up the belt, Sam. Speed up the belt, speed up the belt, Sam. Speed up the, speed up the, speed up the, speed up the belt. Time's production will sweep the nation. A simple notion, the world's reward. Even people who ain't too clever can learn to tighten and not forever. Attach one pedal or pull one lever. point during my final thoughts, but a number of Ragtime's individual components could easily be fleshed out to support their own musical. For example, the North Pole Expedition I could see being a musical. I could also see a show about Evelyn Nesbitt and her love triangle being an artistic success. Why not, right? A musical that only focuses on Tata and his daughter. Sure, why not? But I'll tell you who cannot support an entire musical and should have been excised from this one, Henry fucking Ford. Henry Ford was an anti-Semite. He absolutely loathed Jewish people, and no amount of hemming and hawing on the part of his peers or predecessors can change that fact. Seriously, read the section of his Wikipedia page titled The Dearborn Independent and Anti-Semitism. You will be astounded by the lengths people went to in order to scrub his record. (laughs) But his record was filthy, is my point. Hitler, Hitler, you know, Hitler, Hitler gives him a shout-out in Mein Kampf. Ford also wrote the following in 1920, quote, If fans wish to know the trouble with American baseball, they have it in three words. Too much Jew. Quote. But why concern ourselves with that when we can turn him into the zany Steve Jobs of his generation? One part genius of enterprise, one part gold prospector from a theme park attraction. It'll be fun. It'll be fun. It'll be fun. The quote about baseball is horrifically ironic when you recall that in Act 2 of Ragtime, Father takes Edgar to a baseball game and is scandalized by how the game has become dirty and no one has an American name. What the fuck? I mean, I know we're supposed to think Father is out of touch and he needs to be changing with the times, but this is an irony that is just really fucked up to me. Lynn Ahrens is Jewish. How was she not aware of Ford's history? I cannot imagine a situation where she wasn't. Maybe that quote about baseball wasn't widely known in the 90s, but come on already with the rest of his heaping pile of bullshit. Cut this song immediately. Mister, please, where is this? You're in New Rochelle. You can take the rope offer. This ain't the city. Mother. I see. I see. He's afraid of losing her. Immigrants are terrified of losing their children. So are we, but just not so conspicuously. 
Don't stare. It's not polite to stare. He's a rude little boy. Ignore him. People of good breeding do not stare at other people. They acknowledge them politely with a bow. Like this. Good day. Good day, sir. She called me sir. Without a doubt, we're really out of New York City. Fine weather, isn't it? Isn't it? Now that we're out of the city, isn't it? Nothing like the city. He's still staring. Never mind. My father's at the North Pole with Admiral Perry and Eskimos. Where is your mother? Dead. All right, it's time for a breath of fresh air, a gulp of cool, fresh water. Fresh, fresh, fresh. Hashtag fresh. You ready? Because we're going to try and move past the fact that Ragtime sanitizes a famed anti-Semite, which will be difficult. Are you ready? Fabulous. I like the relationship between Mother and Tata. It begins here and develops further during a song in Act 2 known as Our Children. There is a deft touch here on the part of McNally, Aarons, and Flaherty. Not surface level, patient, consider. These are not big, booming, high-ass dramatics. These are small, indelibly human interactions between two adult people. you love to see it, am I right? I simply wish they could have found a way to apply that same deft touch to the stories of Sarah and Cole House. Cole House especially. Have you been paying attention to anything I've said about that character? That character is a disaster. The only problem with the Nothing Like the City track is that I have to listen to Edgar, who is basically a wind-up toy mouse with a voice box. Hedger, <laughs> kid, give it a rest already. Go predict Pearl Harbor and fail to warn some random Olympic diver about it. I don't know. What are you looking at me for? Scram! Daddy played piano, played it very well. Music from those hands could catch you like a spell. He could make you love him, for the tune was done. to describe Audra McDonald. What words does one use to describe Audra McDonald? Well, I can give you 20. Vivacious, resonant, empathetic, talented, beautiful, focused, treasure, singular, artist, inspiration, diva, hilarious, maternal, strong, mighty, ethereal, unerring, priceless, human, open. If you want 20 more, let me know and I'll get back to you next week. As written, Sarah feels like a bit of a non-entity. She's broken at the top of the show, repaired by a newfound love for Cole House and her son, and is destroyed moments after having made her first big decision. It's, you know, that's an arc. I'm not saying that's not an arc, but she only lives to die and inform the majority of Cole House's arc. I'll say it once more. This does not seem like a character women of color are itching to play. I think people saw Audra on stage, heard her on the cast album, and were inspired by her talent. They admired her commitment to spinning gold out of straw, and they wanted to emulate their idol. I totally get it. 
But when we say we love a song like Daddy's Son, which is perfectly serviceable on its own, as sheet music, it's perfectly serviceable, do we mean to say that we love Audra? I'll say that again. When we say we love Daddy's Son, I love that song, do we really mean to say that we just love Audra? What would we pick if only one could exist in this messed up world of ours? The song or Audra? You know the answer. Audra lifted this material above her head because that's what the best actors are capable of. And so we must relieve her of that burden and give her the credit she deserves. We already give her a lot of credit. Give her all of it is what I'm trying to say. For the record, in the novel, Sarah almost never speaks, so at the very least, this team understood she had to be given, you know, an actual voice if she was ever going to make an impression on stage. Sarah, it's more than promises. Sarah, it must be true. A country that lets a man like me own a car, raise a child, build a life with you. McDonald and Brian Stokes Mitchell. Without them at the center of this original cast, you would not have much of a show. Supremely talented actors of color, breathing life and lending energy to a piece devised entirely by self-congratulatory white people? Shocking, unheard of, I do say. As dedicated musical minions will recall, we have discussed Mitchell's work several times on the podcast, from his appearances in the Kiss Me Kate and Man of La Mancha revivals, to his amazing work in Kiss of the Spider Woman. I thought he was a little overcooked in La Mancha, if you'll recall, but it's astonishing how he almost makes me forget Cole House is a train wreck of a character. Put him alongside Audra, and you've got magic, baby, pure magic. That's what we have with Wheels of a Dream. Does Wheels of a Dream work without them? Technically, yes, it's functional. Yes, it is a song. It is a song. We have been tricked into thinking these songs are just as amazing as the people who lend their talents to them, and we need to stop operating under that assumption. You want proof Wheels of a Dream isn't up to snuff when divorced from Audra and Brian? Go back in time and watch my white college classmates try to belt it out during a musical theater performance class. That'll sober you up real quick, but I don't want to be sober. Sober up. Brown eyes ought to take a chance The stars are silver notes Across that sky now Sarah Brown eyes 
I got to make you stay. Nothing for it but a ragtime tune on that piano. Oh, Sarah, brown eyes, don't be shy now. Sarah, brown eyes, gonna take a chance. The stars are silver notes. to say about Sarah Brown Eyes as a standalone piece, it, like so much of the Aaron's and Flaherty score, is a pleasing tickle to the ear that is only made memorable by the presence of Brian Stokes Mitchell. Christ, is he going back to this well already? It's like he doesn't have much to say about ragtime score. Oh, well, you know, we don't. <laughs> Are we fighting? Let's not fight. Is it hard for me to relate to Cole House when I know he's a murderer? Yes, and I resent that. It's a stupid position to put me in as an audience member. Oh, I want to support this black character, but his actions are so disturbing to me, a white audience member. Truly, these were the complicated days of our lives. That's dumb. Don't write stories that encourage people to question the motivations of black people. It's insane to do that. Okay, don't do that. While we're here is... Um, am I supposed to view Booker T. Washington as a predecessor to MLK Jr.? And is Cole House meant to be a version of Malcolm X? I'm asking. I'm genuinely asking. These thoughts are dumb, though, right? My questions are dumb. I shouldn't be wondering these things. But I can totally see some white novelist in 1975 thinking, yes, this makes sense, and it will make sense to all the world. You're not an effective delivery system of ideas when I'm here on this end drawing up third-grade scholastic book fair conclusions. Brian, I love you. You did your best. You and Audra deserved better. There are people out there Unafraid of revealing That they might have a feeling Or they might have been wrong There are people out there Unafraid to feel sorrow Unafraid of tomorrow Unafraid to be weak
My current theory is that ragtime only continues to have a slight foothold in the zeitgeist because white college students can't let go of the material. They cannot stop singing songs like Wheels of a Dream and Back to Before, which you just heard. Because if they didn't, what would replace those songs in their rep books, I do ask? Those songs have been in their rep books for upwards of two years! Here's a scary possibility you might want to consider. Get new songs. Back to Before is bland pea milk. P-E-A milk, not P-E-E milk. It slides off the listener like rainwater and leaves no mark whatsoever. Get new songs. But there's a part where I get to sing loud. I know. I know. I'm not trying to be mean. I get it. Everyone loves an opportunity to sing loud, especially college students. Ah, everybody. I shouldn't be rude. Everybody likes singing loud. But I'm begging you. Look elsewhere. Go out and tell a story to your daughters and your sons. Make them hear you. Make them hear you And tell them in our struggle We were not the only ones Make them hear you Make them hear you Your sword can be a sermon Or the power of the pen Teach every child to raise his voice And then my brothers then be demanded by ten million righteous men Make them hear you When they hear you I'll be near you I'll say this much about my experience with Ragtime. It's been Rocky. Rocky the Musical by Aaron Flaherty. Shut up. But at least it allowed me to identify a pattern in Brian Stokes Mitchell's career. La Mancha, Spider-Woman, and Ragtime all see him playing variations on the political agitator who rails against a terrible system. This is a highly specific bit of typecasting, and I am fascinated by it. Some people get typecast as, you know, the tech nerd or the mean girl, but Mitchell was pegged as an activist, someone you'd want to stand behind. That's pretty cool. And Make Them Hear You is decidedly stirring under his watch, though if I could pick only one of Mitchell's anthems, it would have to be the day after that from Spider-Woman. A better song, better show, more capable of addressing through music how the world mistreats those without power. That's it. That's our deconstruction of the Ragtime score. Now let's get a word from our sponsor, 5678 Coffee. Take it away, 5678. Yeah, well, you tell him that if he ever wants to work in this town again, he will throw himself off of the Empire State Building, all right? Hi, it's me, Zach from a chorus line. Uh, I'm just gonna, you, you're, yeah, I know you're listening to this show and that's fantastic, but I just want you to know, this is a business, right? I work in a business. I'm trying to direct a, a musical right now. I'm trying to cast a musical so that I may direct it, if I could just fucking say that for a goddamn second. But here's the thing. You want to be in this business? Huh? Maybe some of you listening to this show like musicals, you want to be in the business? That's fantastic. I'm Zach from a chorus line. Did I say that? Ha <laughs> I'm hepped up on five, six, seven, eight coffee. I didn't know, I didn't know if you knew that. But here's the thing. If you're going to be in this business, you're going to have to start at the sweaty, stinky bottom. The sweaty, slick, stinky, greasy, filmy bottom, all right? And if you're if you're starting at the bottom, you're probably going to be one of my assistants. And here's the thing. Any director in this town worth his 
goddamn Epsom salts is going to be drinking five, six, seven, eight coffee on the job because it's going to get them through the grind. The grind of having to talk to these stupid actors with their stupid stories and their dreams and their fears. Oh, they have so many fears and I have to pretend I am interested in them. Oh, no, please tell me about how you got bit by a cat at the age of three. Oh, no, please tell me how you got bit by a bee at the age of four. No, please tell me how you got bit by a macaw at the age of nine. I would love to know. Oh, and by the way, if it's all right with you, could you maybe dance a little bit? Could you maybe read from a script? I don't mean to interrupt your free therapy session. Anyway, it gets you through that grind. It gets you through the grind of talking to the designers and all the producers and the advertising people. It never ends. Never ends. Five, six, seven, eight. It's, this is my only friend. So if you're going to be an assistant, which is what you will be, if you start at the sweaty, stinky, shit-stained, treadmark bottom of this business, you're going to have to learn how to take an order of five, six, seven, eight coffee. Understand? What do I take it with? I take it with a fucking bottle of vodka. A little sip of the coffee, a little jug of the, little chug of the jug. <laughs> oh boy, I'm fading. Hold on. Uh, yes, Daddy needs it. You need it. We all need it. And if you want to work for me, Zach from a chorus line, did I mention that? <laughs> You're gonna have to count on it. <laughs> you want to count on me? You want to count on this business? Then count on five, six, seven, eight. Now get out of my fucking sight. I gotta talk to this guy. Now what, did I, what are you still doing here? I told you to tell him that if he ever wants to work in this business, he will throw himself off of the Empire State Building. And if you think I am being insensitive, <laughs> just give me a second. Just give me a second. I'll come up with something worse. I'll come up with something more insensitive. <laughs> Final thoughts on Ragtime. The problem with Ragtime is how it could have been about anything and chooses to be about everything. Here we are back at this point. Any one element of its sweeping American senses could have been lifted out and developed into a full-length piece. We've gone over that, but obviously, that obviously wasn't enough for this team. If the novel could offer a warts-and-all survey of history, they would as well, damn it, utilizing an enormous set of characters who routinely and loudly express their conflicting philosophies. Oh, how complex. But to what end? What's the point? Size and volume are not synonymous with complexity and depth. Despite its posturing, I don't believe Ragtime's wide scope is meant to make us think on where we've come and where we're going. If we do, so much the better. That's the kind of shit that wins you four Tonys. But what the show really seems to enjoy is the act of gleefully messing with history, mixing fact and fiction to see what comes out of it. That's the enticing playtime factor for these writers, make no doubt about it. And it's one thing for Edgar to warn Houdini about World War One, but I draw the line at Booker T. Washington failing to prevent the assassination of Cole House, a totally made-up paper doll of a character who is meant to appeal to white liberals while assuring conservatives that yes, black people can go too far in their search for reclamation. On a related note, it is impossible to discuss the deaths of Sarah and Cole House without considering the Black Lives Matter movement. In 1998, killing off your two black leads may have passed as some nod to classic tragedy, but in 2019, that decision reads as atonal and racist. Once again, 
All white writing team. Obviously, I obviously cannot speak for everyone, and we have to remind ourselves that the voice you're hearing is coming from a white cis gay man, but I don't think black audiences are interested in watching a black woman who is beaten to death for raising her voice, or a black man who is shot while his hands are in the air. Black people do not need to have that story delivered to them by white writers when it's coming at them from every news outlet, when they already live with the knowledge that they could become another victim of white rage. All of this makes me question whether we should continue to make room for ragtime. If our stories are to address racial injustice, they need to be crafted and delivered by artists of color who can speak from a place of experience and truth. McNally, Aarons, Flaherty, and E.L. Doctorow straight up cannot speak to everyone's truth. It's impossible. They know what it means to be white, and Flaherty knows what it means to be Jewish, but they will never know what it means to be black. Ragtime gestures toward meaning and heart, and maybe that's enough for a lot of people. I know that the show has a lot of fans, but it isn't enough for me. Now, as a reminder, in 1998, the winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical was The Lion King, and the additional nominees were Sideshow and The Scarlet Pimpernel. The Lion King, you're not going anywhere. You're not going anywhere. <laughs> I know I had my my concerns and my my troubled observations regarding the Lion King, but Ragtime is an utter it's a complete mess. So we're not going to be worrying about changing anything around, handing medallions to new recipients. We're not going to be doing that. Let's rank the show. Now I know this is going to seem sacrilegious to all of those fans I mentioned of Ragtime, but I'm not going to apologize for this ranking, all right? We weren't asking you to. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> so let's just rank the show. Let's just get this out of the way. I'm going to put it at number 35, right above Miss Saigon and right below Avenue Q. That's right. The performances are strong and the score is more than competent. But between the inclusion of Henry Ford and the mishandling of the black leads, I can't in good conscience give it more credit than it deserves. So there you go. I also moved up the goodbye girl randomly from number 31 up to number 30. So congratulations, the goodbye girl. I just realized that I wanted to listen to that more than School of Rock, which is the show it is sitting on top of at this point. Definitely. Give me the goodbye girl. Over School of Rock? Absolutely. I don't want to listen to School of Rock. Get it out of here. Now, if you're wondering, if you're just now joining us for this lovely podcast of ours, if you want to see the full ranking of all of the shows that we have covered so far, go to our Twitter profile, Musical Man Pod, click on the pinned tweet. It's going to take you to a Google Sheet. And I believe on the second tab, you will be able to see that full breakdown of our current ranking. Let's talk show-related ephemera. Now, speaking of our episode on The Lion King, if you'll recall, we watched an episode of City University Television presents the American Theater Wing Seminars working in the theater producing. So welcome back for another episode of City University Television presents the American Theater Wing Seminars working in the theater producing. City University Television presents... The American Theater Wing Seminars. Working in the theater. This seminar, producing. 
That's right, they did an episode, and I keep saying episode as if this is a series. I don't really, I don't know if they would consider these to be episodes, maybe standalone piece, but they did a standalone piece on Ragtime. Now, after having watched two of these seminars, I can attest to how they are both dry as toast and somewhat worthy of your time if you're interested in learning a smidge about how shows get to Broadway and are marketed to audiences. The Lion King panel is decidedly more revealing than the one for Ragtime, which sees all involved giving each other big wet kisses for a solid 80 minutes, and I do apologize. I think this is just something we're gonna have to deal with. Apparently, there's hammering above us in the studio this week. I, I don't know, Patty and Benny both have their arms up. We're just gonna have to ignore it. Think of it as just like a fun backbeat. Dum, 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 dum. Just keep hammering away, it's fine. We'll be fine. Yeah. Yes, fantastic. Listener Jordan Lee Smith reached out via Twitter to let me know Aaron's and Flaherty auditioned to write the music and lyrics for Ragtime. That's the first time I'd ever heard about that. And this is confirmed during this seminar. Producer Garth Drabinsky reached out to a number of writing teams, around 8 to 10, sent them McNally's original 60-page treatment for Ragtime, and paid for these teams, these writing teams, to set up shop in recording studios so they could hammer out their ideas. Aaron's and Flaherty's names were only revealed once their songs were deemed the best of the lot. Unsurprisingly, the names of those who lost out are not revealed during the seminar. Isabel Stevenson, who is, was, I should say, the president of the American Theater Wing, if she's still with us, God love her. <laughs> She's a she's a very old, very sharp lady. Sharp yet confused and all over the place. Isabel Stevenson routinely interrupts the panelists during these very quiet, reflective moments of emotional and creative vulnerability to say things like, yeah, sure, whatever, we gotta move on. We gotta get to the nitty gritty. How much money is the show making? How many seats are in the theater? Can we get, Penny and Patty, can we get examples of that? Well, you know, it was one of those once-in-a-lifetime experiences for me, I felt so privileged to just be at the threshold of the room where this was happening. It was a miracle, I thought. All right, now we have to move on. Where is the selling come in? What, what? There's one moment in the show that I, I actually couldn't remember whether I had written or he had written, and I um, went back to the book and I found the specific scene, and it's right after Mother has found the baby, and she hears the um, Italian ice men coming and the gardeners coming up the hill, the maids, and, and she... And it doesn't say how she feels or what she was thinking, and I realized that I had filled that blank in, you know, but in a, I, I'm rather proud of it, but, I, but it was my sort of interpreting what she thought at that moment. You know, I never stopped to think they might have lives beyond our lives, and he doesn't go that far, so, you know, it's, it's I have always to go back to the nitty-gritty. How much merchandising, how much publicity? It's hilarious, and her assumptions about how the show came together are often wrong. As I said, she's very, she, I think she thinks she's very sharp, and maybe she was at a certain point, but you can tell that it's kind of getting foggy upstairs. Everyone keeps talking about how ragtime is relevant for today. It's relevant. It's all quite relevant. But they never go into further detail, and it is maddening. They emphasize how the story of ragtime is big and American, while going out of their way to criticize the 1981 film for being too focused on Cole House. By the way, if you've never stopped to consider how one of ragtime's two lead black characters is named Cole House, and Cole House, as a reminder, is a fictional character not based on anyone, you will, you will, you will, you'll stop to consider that once you hear eight different white people say it out loud several times. Cole House this, Cole House that, Cole House, Cole House, Cole House. 
What a choice. But here's what I really want to talk about. At one point, a panelist mentions a review for Ragtime's L.A. production. I believe this is Drabinsky. You know what? I'm just going to throw this to him. We have this audio, so let's just get this audio of Drabinsky talking about Ragtime and its connection to Bill Clinton. Take it away. And it was interesting because in Los Angeles, um, uh, when the review came out, which was wonderful in the L.A. Times, uh, Laurie Weiner, the critic there, quoted... Uh, President Clinton's inaugural address from 1996, which made a major statement on race relations, and that's when the whole race relations policy of this particular administration began to to really gear up in a, in a powerful way. And um, and we always talked amongst ourselves. And wouldn't it be wonderful if we could really finally get the president to see this show? Because in so many ways, it demonstrably depicts. Uh, the predicament of America today and, and what it says for the next century going forward, or what it can say. And, um, and to see him so moved by the experience and then join us on stage on, on Sunday and talk to that audience after they had seen the show and what he said about the experience of seeing that show, well, that's publicity that you really are really very fortunate. I'm dying to ask Garth if we can use it in a quote ad. You <laughs> must see this show, Bill Clinton. <laughs> this entire story could not be more late 90s if it tried. It's nice how everyone was able to pat themselves on the back for advancing race relations, but there were slash are a lot of people who understand how poorly Clinton handled that issue. The Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act of 1994, anyone? Okay. Ah, to determine, that's right, which show we discuss next, we'll need to take a ride on the musical carousel, otherwise known as the Random Number Generator, I named after that classic Rogers and Hammerstein show, K-I-S-S-I-N-G-E-R. Everyone ready? Well, before we get on, before we get on, we haven't been on the musical carousel in weeks, all right? So let's just make sure, Benny, Patty, are all of the horses polished to a shining gleam? Are all of the gears and widgets, is everything green? up? Is everything in tip-top shape? I just, I don't want anyone to fall off the carousel. It's been out of use for so long is what I'm saying. I'm getting big thumbs up. All right, let's all hop on the musical carousel. Everyone ready? Then away we go! All right, we have stepped off of the musical carousel, and I find that it has deposited us in the year 2002. We will be covering a nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It was up for that award in 2002. It ran for 965 performances, and that show is You're in Town, baby. You're in Town. Yes, yes, yes. We will be covering You're in Town next week, so get ready, my lovelies, my musical minions. Go to Patreon.com com slash musical man pod to find out how you can support the show financially if you donate one dollar a month you can donate one three five or ten but if you donate one dollar a month i thank you and you will receive weekly verbal shout outs let's do that now thank you very much jordan ashley chris jc jenna aaron lily haley brandon brad matt zach and marisol if you donate one dollar a month you also get bonus episodes dedicated to the 73rd annual tony awards and the trailer for cats 
Just keep hammering. Just keep hammering, baby. Yes! Uh, do it, baby! Keep hammering! Uh, uh, uh. You'll also get an episode dedicated to ABC's The Little Mermaid Live, which is coming up. Oh, goodness. By the time this episode drops, uh, that will already have been broadcast. Goodness gracious. So I hope that you will... Wa I hope that you watched it with me. That episode might already be out by this time, but no promises. I will get it out as soon as possible. I need it to be relevant. Relevancy, baby, it's important. If you donate $3 a month, you get everything I just mentioned, plus a musical shout-out in the style of a character, actor, or composer of your choosing, and coming uh, in this month of November 2019, the High School Musical Podcast. That's right. That will begin once we have, you know, Disney+, Plus, and I can watch all of that stuff without having to pay for it individually. And by all of that stuff, I mean every single entry in the High School Musical franchise, including Sharpay's Fabulous Adventure. Thank you very much. If you donate $5 a month, you will get everything I have already mentioned, plus you can stop the musical carousel to determine what show I shall discuss on the podcast. You will also gain access to Season 1 of All I Ask of You, an advice show hosted by the Phantom of the Opera, and you will have access to my ongoing Broadway in Chicago series. And finally, if you donate $10 a month, you will get everything I have already mentioned, plus... The Snub Club, that's right, a special series dedicated to Broadway musicals that were never, never nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical. Our 10th episode, which is dropping on Wednesday, November 27th, will be dedicated to A Doll's Life, and past subjects include Amelie, Merrily We Roll Along, Flahooly, American Psycho, Be More Chill, Jekyll and Hyde, Allegiance, It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman, and The Bridges of Madison County. Your donations go toward the purchase of rare cast recordings, movie rentals, and Podbean costs. If we ever get to a point where we are bringing in $100 or more in total donations, I will produce M3, The Movie Musical Man, a monthly series for which I will watch trilogies of musicals that are tied by a common theme. That's right, Jumbo. Just keep smashing your way through that... Mm -hmm. Oh, boy. Oh, I gotta bite my tongue. I gotta bite my fucking tongue. If you're listening to the show, I'm nothing but a sugar baby now. I'm a Mickey Rooney sugar baby. If you're listening to the show through Apple Podcasts, we have 23 five-star reviews right now, and we are trying to get to 30. When we do, I know that we will, I will create, a, I will produce, record, create an episode dedicated to the Disney Descendants trilogy. So go to Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating, and write out a lovely review. I have not had a review in a month, and I want to read them, baby. Please go there now. Peck out a quick review. Anything. Anything you want. It could be a sentence. I don't care. Love you, baby. Just write Love ya, baby. You can also stream the podcast at musicalmanpod.podbean.com and Stitcher. You can follow us on Twitter at musicalmanpod and send me an email at musicalmanpod at gmail.com. If you have a vigorous and respectful counterargument against my red-hot ragtime takes, send it to me. I really do want to hear it. I want to read it. I'll read it on the show. I know how much people love ragtime, and believe me when I say, I wanted to love it as much as you do as well. It is more fun to love than it is to hate. Thanks, as always, to Patty and and Benny in the booth. I'm so excited. Week in and week out, Patty and Benny are going to be here. Thank you to Alex Green for our beautiful logo and to Zach Little for our fabulous music. Oh, you should listen to the one of the... I, I think this should still be the latest episode of Zach's podcast. Zach has an amazing podcast called The Last Podcast. You should listen to all of the episodes in that feed. But in the most recent one, I talked to him about uh, this very podcast and my entire history with producing podcasts. So if you want to hear that, go 
go, find, subscribe. Ah, yes, you know what that sound means. Yes, just when the fun is starting comes the time for parting. Oh, well, we'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, off, finish, and end. Good night.